Well, we continue with our tour of the Westminster Standards tonight, and we're all the way in chapter 20 of Christian Liberty. And I keep saying this, but I want to say it again. This is one of those chapters that is a distinctively Reformed take, on a, a, which means a biblical take in a, in a very thoughtful way on a very important topic. And the most important, the longest statement in this, ch- par- in this chapter is the first paragraph. It's the most important. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God, and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind, all of which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God, than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. Now that, I know they would never have done this, but if there was one of the many times in the drafting of the Westminster Confession where they would have been giving high fives for the quality of the work they were allowed to do, this paragraph would be one of them. And I think the thing in our context today that I love most about it is for most Christians, I'm sorry to say most Reformed Christians, the, 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 when, when Christian liberty is brought up, it's, it, if not the freedom to sin, it's the freedom to dabble in things. I, I, some years ago, uh, quite a few, I, after a morning service, there was a young woman. I would not seen her before in the pews, and I, I spoke to her. She was uh, maybe right after college age, and I said, are you visiting our church? And she had come to Reformed understanding. She was really really on fire for the doctrines of grace. And she says, one question I want to ask you do I have to drink in order to be reformed? Well, as we will see, you are free to use the things that God's made in their proper way. But that, that's the spirit, I'm sorry to say, in our generation in which the topic of Christian liberty tends to go straight to. What can I get away with? And, 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 and I think partly because so many people coming into the Reformed faith are coming out of a fundamentalism that's going to take a very heavy criticism, I will say. Uh, the fundamentalism is going to take a beating from the divines tonight. Uh, and, and, and they felt so, they're, they're so angry about that, they've been so afflicted by the legalism that they, they go to a different extreme. And I always want to say when we talk about Christian liberty, The essence of Christian liberty is that we are set free to know God, to be saved, to worship him in a spirit of holiness, to be free from the guilt of our sin. That's biblical uh, Christian freedom. And and this is a great statement of it. Let's work through it in some detail. And and there's three categories that they really, well, there's really four, but when it comes to what we have have deliverance from is broken down in three ways, and they correspond pretty much to justification, sanctification, and glorification. The Westminster divines were nothing if not orderly thinkers. They're extremely orderly thinkers. And And the first statement is so important. We have liberty because that liberty was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so any Christian liberty we're going to exercise is going to be in him. 
in union with him through faith and in pursuit of his kingdom and for the, the gladful praise of his glory. Uh, and the first category they give is that we have liberty from the guilt, the wrath, and the curse. That's the first thing we should be thinking of in Christian liberty. What is the liberty that he gives us? He gives us the liberty to be forgiven, not to be continued guilty, not to be delivered from the wrath of God. We're delivered from the curse of sin. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus who delivers us, who gives us liberty from the wrath to come. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so the New Testament language, this is a forensic category. These are legal categories. Now, I have to say this comes to my mind because about an hour ago, I was looking at a website with Mr. Duncan of an evangelistic ministry approach uh, that the PCA, in our view, is foolishly aligning with, and we're trying to get the PCA not to align with it. I mean, it has all this. It's very hip. It's very very market-driven. Nothing wrong with that, by the way, I guess. There's not very... uh, interconnected. But if you look at all this stuff to connect people with Jesus, there's no forensic category. And I, I, I was sitting there, I looked at the website, I said, Mr. Duncan, if I remember, if I'm not mistaken, the Christian message that we're trying to share is that we are sinners under the wrath of a holy God who are justly condemned, but he loved us and he sent his son to die in our place that we might on the one hand, be forgiven because the debt of our penalty was paid. And on the other hand, we will be justified in the righteousness he imputes to us. He goes, Mr. Phil- Dr. Phillips, I believe that is the core of the Christian message. I said, I don't see it anywhere on this webpage. With all, all, you know, Jesus, un- Jesus knew what it was like to be in your situation. Jesus is, But there's no forensic category anywhere. Well, my friends, the first thing we must talk about when we talk about being freed, it's the legal categories. People go, well, you're being so legalistic. No, no, God is a holy God. He is a just God. And pray, you know, let us never forget that you and I are people who deserve to go to hell. And as we whine about, we're discontented before God because our college team is not doing well. A problem I don't have this year. I I have before, but not this year or or, or whatever. And 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 it's not just petty discontentments. Real suffering we have, genuine disappointments we have. We are all people who have been set free from the legal guilt, the burden of the wrath of God that we deserve. And that deserves to be first. But secondly, and this certainly needs emphasis today, we have the liberty, first justification, the forensic category, but then secondly, sanctification, the transformational category of union with Christ. That we have liberty from the bondage and the power of sin. We we are delivered from the present evil world, from bondage to Satan, and the dominion of sin. Now let me say this needs to be greatly emphasized today. Because when we have union with Christ through faith, we believe in Jesus, we are then in Christ. We receive the benefits of his saving work. He justifies us, but he pours the Holy Spirit into our life. And there was a definitive end to our prior life. I was converted at age 30. I always liked how John Stott put that. He said, you lived, you had a life, as if someone wrote a book about your life. And then that book, my book would say, and then at age 30, Rick Phillips died and that life ended. 
And then a new life began in Christ with the life of the Holy Spirit. You can know oh, it's the same person. It, it is the same person circumstantially, but it is a radically different person. The, 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 the vital importance of the, of the new birth, of, of regeneration, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which means that we are able, what, what liberty it is, to be able to live a godly life. Now, even as I say that, probably not someone in the room, but somebody watching on the internet will go, oh, you're, 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 you're teaching triumphalism. Well, we all know we're not going to, well, we don't all know, but we know we're, we're not going to be perfect in this life. We're all going to be struggling sinners. But we are going to struggle with, against sin. People say to me, Pastor, I'm struggling with sin. I'm like, well, it's good if you are struggling. The problem is when you are not struggling. And not only that, we are, to have, we are able to have victories in this life. Total victory awaits you know, experientially, transformationally, awaits our, our glorification. That's the next phase of our eschatology. But in this life, he breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. And what a liberty it is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the ordinary means of grace, we are free to live a changed life. And that is great news. There's news our generation needs to hear in the church and out of it. Uh, Galatians 1, 3 to 4. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, what does that mean? I, am no, I no longer belong to the world the way I used to. I was a worldling. I, I, oh, what a good secular humanist I was. I just, and we are living in a generation that it, people think they're being brave and radical by saying the same thing that everybody else is saying. Well, that was so brave. They, they made a, a transgender comment. That was so brave. No, it's just people being lemmings. I, I speak this as a former lemming. And we belong to the world. We thought the world's thoughts. We conformed to the pattern of the age. But to be a Christian, I no longer conform to the pattern of the age. I am no longer. And so we are those who live in the world but are no longer of the world. We belong to the kingdom of Christ. We are delivered from the bondage of Satan and the dominion of sin. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And tra- look at Paul's language. He tra- it's his liberation language. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. For sin shall have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And so we, oh, we are still subject to temptation to sin. We are still sinners. We still have sinful desires. We are to be struggling with sin. Uh, but you've heard me say it. I, I'll just say it again. We are no longer in the situation where we can't help it. It's not, it's not only the case that we should not go on sinning as we did, but it's also that we need not because of the liberty that we have to pursue holiness by the grace of God. We have liberty of sanctification by grace. And then there's liberty of life after death. This is our glorification. We are delivered from the evil afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and the everlasting damnation. Now, that's, this is one of those statements where they show such penetrating insight. You go, what do they mean by the evil of afflictions? Well, they backtrack death, which is the curse of sin, back into our present experience. And, and we have afflictions, but we're delivered from the evil of them. Romans 8.28, we now that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
And it's a real privilege as a pastor. I know Bob will echo this. It's, it's normally the case that uh, we're, we're in a hospital bed with someone who's going through a great affliction or they're in a very fearful situation. And the Christian is able, and will so many times do so, will, will say, I am trusting completely in the Lord. And they, they are able to enjoy peace in the midst of afflictions. And not only that, Pastor, I know that my afflictions are going to work for my good. I don't know how it's for my good. I personally wouldn't have chosen it. But this has happened to me under the loving hand of, of my Heavenly Father. And so even in this life, we're delivered from death as it backtracks in terms of our experience. And then, of course, the, Psalm, Psalm 119 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Who talks that way? A Christian talks that way. It was good for me. If I was afflicted, it was for my good that I was afflicted because all things are to be working for my good uh, in Christ. And then when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass that which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The one, one of the things death will not do to you as a Christian is harm you. Death will not harm you. It is your gateway into glory. And Jesus will say, come, you blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we're delivered from everything we would fear in the life to come by union with Christ. This is, and you go, Pastor, when do you, when do you, get talk, when do you talk about that I can have a glass of wine? I, I am going to get to that. But that's, that's so relatively insignificant compared to this. Now, there's also positive liberty. We have the liberty of the privileges of God's children. We have free access to the Father. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why is it that we believe that prayer works? A prayer does not work because we use the right formula. My apologies to the publishers of the prayer of Jabez. Actually, I don't apologize. Um, and other formula prayers. Uh, nothing wrong with thinking through your prayers, of course. But our prayers do not work because we get them right. Our prayers work because God is our Father, because we have the right of access as his children. And so when you pray, and Jesus said, teach us how to pray, our Father. And, and knowing that you're a child of God, you go, oh, but I'm a bad child. Of God. You're a child of God. You know, I'm an imperfect father, but I take all my children's phone calls. They don't answer all of our texts, but we answer all of theirs. They did get around to it. Uh, but, uh, uh, and you have access to the Father. And you have the freedom to obey, obey your, your Heavenly Father's will. Not from slavish fear, the fear of a slave. Okay, if I don't do this, and some of us, I think, have to unlearn this instinct. But we need to unlearn this instinct. We're to obey God, not because we're going to get it if we don't. Well, I mean, sin works poorly, as our nation is a living example these days. Uh, but we don't, we're, no, we're delivered from obeying God out of some dreadful fear. You think in the uh, parable of the talents, how the man who received one talent, and he did nothing with it, and he, he buried it. And the master came back and said, I knew you're a hard man. And so I buried it, and I hear it's back. And, and Jesus, after rebuking him, says he didn't know me. He doesn't know me. Those who know the Father, we, we don't obey him. We're delivered from that. We don't obey him because we're going to get it. He's like the divine whack-a-mole, and we're the mole. Um, 
know with childlike love and a willing mind. Um, Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I do want to say that this is one of those places where we don't gender neutralize it. Ladies, you get to be sons just like we get to be brides. Uh, It's different metaphors. I'm not sure metaphor is the right word. Sonship involves heirship and authority as well as filial relationship. And we have the adoption of sons. We have it together just as we are together, the bride of Christ. And uh, you think of a son who's close to his father. And there's nothing that's more blessed to his heart than, than doing what his father wants him to do and, and, and carrying on the work and blessing that and having the blessing of the father. We have been set free to that. Now, the first paragraph closes with a very interesting comment that we have greater liberty in the new covenant, but not a different liberty. And they make the point that all these blessings, these liberties of redemption were also available in the Old Testament. And here's one of the places where you see the fundamental reformed approach from the scriptures of continuity between the old covenant experience and the new covenant experience. There is discontinuity. There are differences, but they are not fundamentally different in kind. And there's always these different ways. You think of the, the, the old dispensationalism, at least, of the Schofield Bible, which said that Old Testament saints were, were saved by works, completely different salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. Listen, to, I know it's kind of small print, but you're, the scripture, this is Galatians 3, 8 to 9, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel. There's only one gospel. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so these privileges were available in the Old Covenant. First uh, Corinthians ten one to four. Our fathers all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so there was the essential reality of these things present in the Old Testament, but that liberty has been enlarged in the New Covenant among Christians. We have, on the one hand, freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law. And I think it's hard for us to existentialize what a blessing that is. Ah, it couldn't have been that bad to be an Old Testament Jew. Well, it's a little onerous, it turns out. The eating restrictions, the, the washing your hands a certain way, the wearing the funny clothes, the wearing your hair a certain way. When we were in New York at West Point, uh, there was a big Hasidic community. Uh, north of New York City, and there were very few things they were allowed to do that were fun, so they would come watch the parades at West Point. And like 20 buses of Hasidic Jews would disgorge for our parades. I used to love to see them because they're they're wearing Deuteronomic dress. And and there they are, the, 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 the ethnic descendants. Show me an ancient Hittite. They don't exist. Show me an ancient Egyptian. That's, these are Visigoths there now, or Vandals. There they are. God, there they are. But the, how sad it is, though, that Christ having come, they're still bound to the ceremonies, the, the, one of the main points of which was to separate them from the world so they didn't assimilate over the centuries. You know, Peter says, he makes the comment, uh, our, uh, why are you putting us, this is, this is the whole Cornelius situation, 
And, and those who want, you know, in the early church, it was so hard for them to break away. In the early church, there was the controversy. When the Gentiles were converted, did they have to keep living under the yoke of the law? And Peter says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither we or our fathers have been able to bear? And then Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, that's got to be properly interpreted. Paul's not saying, oh, you're free from obeying the Bible. No, we're free to obeying the Bible. He's talking about the whole ceremonial system, which put a clamp on everything. Uh, and we also have greater boldness of access to the throne of grace. You know, I will, let me just say in general, it's a bit of a mysterious topic, I think. Uh, what is the, the nature in terms of access to God in prayer? And then the, 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 the next one, the fuller communication of the free spirit of God. Uh, of course, Pentecost was the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church. And you go, well, did they not have the Spirit in the Old Testament? How can you have the Spirit if you're not regenerate? Which is a very good question. And the answer, according to Psalm 51, is they did have the Spirit. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And I think the best way to understand it, it's not a difference in kind, it's a difference in degree. And no doubt in form to a certain extent. But suffice it to say that when Jesus says things like this, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified, is that whatever boldness of access to God in prayer someone like Jehoshaphat had or David had or Solomon, we have a greater one because Christ the mediator is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so... It's greater liberty now, a fuller communication. One of my favorite verses, uh, two verses, 2 Corinthians three seventeen to 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, how are we going to find that freedom? And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I want to highlight the first word. Now, that's a redemptive historical now. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit in the age of the gospel, in the new covenant age. Now, what does he mean when he says the Lord? Look, for Paul, the Lord is Christ. So he says Christ is the Spirit. So has our Trinitarian theology broken down? No. He's saying that what the work that Christ did on earth has now been taken up by the Holy Spirit. And so there's a, there's a, a higher degree of unity. The work that you, and, and we were tempted to say, wouldn't it have been great, a better form of discipleship if we could physically see Jesus? If we could, if I'd been there to see the miracles? The answer is no. Because what he did then, that same work is now being done in the power of the Spirit, which works inwardly. Now the Lord is the Spirit. That's an economic statement. The work of the Lord is being carried on by the Spirit. That is what's happening now. Well, that is a great freedom. Uh, Fuller communications of the Spirit of God. Well, that's the most important thing to say about Christian liberty. But there are other things we need to say. And secondly is the liberty of conscience. This is paragraph 2 of chapter 20. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in, in matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience, that means against conscience, 
is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy the liberty of conscience and reason also. Let's work that out. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. Let me give you some people who are not the Lord of the conscience. Your pastor is not the Lord of your conscience. Your session is not the Lord of your conscience. The General Assembly is not the Lord of your conscience. The writers of the Westminster Assembly are not the Lord of your conscience. God himself is the only Lord of the conscience. And every Christian stands before God as Lord. And so you get statements like this, James 4.12, There is only one lawgiver and judge. Who are you to judge your neighbor? And so we're to realize, I I think this is particularly true when it comes to working things out practically. You know, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And and there's there's a lot of biblical grid on that. But there's not detailed applications. You know, you will get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, you will study, you'll use this study of the Bible, you will pray this prayer for 17 minutes. That's not given there. Uh, and I, I, I suppose that sounds kind of trivial. Uh, actually, the situation here was in, in Rome in First Corinthians ten was the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And so the question it actually was something of a quandary. If you bought meat in a Roman city, uh, that meat was always going to have been offered to an to a. a, a an idol. And usually there was some sort of stamp either on the packaging or on the stand. And there were some Christians who felt that it was wrong to do so. And so they would not eat food sacrificed to idols because they felt that it was participating in demonology. There were other Christians who said, big whoop. I mean, it's meat. It didn't, they're doing their thing, but it's just meat. We're free to eat it. And it's in this context, this is a good example. Uh, by the way, Paul takes the second view. But he says, look, we all, we work these things out. Let's do it by faith. And, and there's going to be, there were strong opinions. It was dividing the church. And the word of God, where the word of God, as Calvin says, where the Bible makes an end of speaking, let us teaching, let us make an end of learning. Uh, And that means that the church may only require what is clearly taught in the word of God. Now, we're living in a a time, and many of us come from church ecclesiastical backgrounds, where this is badly violated. And we're we're to be holy, and that means you don't go to movies. Movies are worldly, so you can't go to movies. Well, that is going beyond the scriptures. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. And uh, now there are sins that we're not to commit. And that's going to give us a lot of guidance. But what, you know, what, whether you can wear shorts or not, uh, many people believe because alcohol does so much damage in the culture that it is a sin to drink alcohol. The problem is where the New Testament speaks to that subject, it defends the, the, the proper use of wine. And, and the Bible, I think particularly of, of Second Timothy and, uh, where, and other places where... Um, the forbidding of things that God has given as good, they have a proper use. Sex is not bad, but it's to have a proper place and a use, namely in marriage for mutual blessing. The, uh, and so we are living in a culture where so many people have had experiences 
where the church is going to bind the conscience. I had, I had twice since I've been here, I've had a local pastor call me and ask me if I thought it was wrong to require women wearing head coverings in order to join the church. Now, I personally am not persuaded by 1 Corinthians 11 that women today are to wear head coverings. Maybe you are persuaded that you should. Um, but I said to him, what you're doing is you're, you're making your cultural appropriation, your, your exegesis on this issue, it's standing in the way of whether they're Christians or not. Actually, one of the guys was persuaded, the other guy was not. <laughs> uh, one, one, actually, one, one guy ended up leaving his denomination saying, I feel like I'm being a legalist. He called me and said, am I being a legalist? I said, yes, you are being a legalist. Uh, uh, membership in the church is, is that established by Christ, saving faith in Jesus Christ. And to say you must sign a pledge to drink no alcohol, to join the church, or to be, and you hear what I'm saying. Uh, the church does not have the authority to bind your conscience beyond the teaching of Scripture. And you go, okay, so I can have sex out of wedlock. No, the, the Scripture is crystal clear on that issue. And you, you may not. Uh, or, or, well, I can cheat on my taxes. No, we have these things called the Ten Commandments. But there's, all, and I think the Lord's Day is a great example of it. You know, I, I like to say that uh, uh, we do not keep the Sabbath by judging each other's Sabbath keeping. And there are inevitably going to be uh, differences of opinion on details. I, I strongly hold, we teach, we confess that the Sabbath remains in effect. That is, we're told to cease our labor on those days. That's, that's what the Bible teaches. We teach that. But exactly how that works out is to be left to the liberty of the conscience. Now, if you come to me and ask me for advice, I will give you advice. But if I discover that you, I mean, I'm not going to give an example because it'll stick in your mind. But, you know, you did something different than I do. I, I'm not going to bind the conscience because I don't have the warrant to do so beyond the word of God. Now, in you, most cases, this is well-meaning people. But it ends up being, I, I've heard the expression recently, fencing the law. I've not actually heard that expression, but I think it's what they're doing. So the, the Bible says, thou shalt not lust, and therefore rigid clothing, you know, codes. Now, by the way, it is a biblical reflection that you should not dress immodestly and that those things ought to be worked out and we should teach that. But uh, we're going to put man-made regulations and give the man-made regulations the same force that the law has. It's the very thing it's talking about. It's where Jesus says you teach the, commandment, the traditions of men as the commandments of God. And so the church is not Lord of the conscience. Our authority does not extend there. Now, there are applications of biblical principles where the Bible is not specific that are left to the individual conscience informed by godly wisdom. Uh, Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And I, I think Romans 14.23 is, is very informative. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You know, there's also growth in the Christian life, and we grow, the Lord leads us on. He's got his own discipleship with us going. And when the church or some other Christian organization comes down with, with all these codifications uh, beyond the Scriptures and treats them as Scripture, we're violating the liberty of conscience. And one thing they tag on at the end was directed towards the Roman Catholic Church. Implicit faith is forbidden. Implicit faith is you don't need to know what it means the church says it, therefore you accept it. 
It's granting to the church and its councils, its confession, as it were, uh, the same authority as the word of God. And Rome teaches implicit faith. Uh, you believe what the church believes. You know, the person says, what do you believe? I believe what the church believes. What does the church believe? The church believes what I believe. What do you in church the church believe? We believe the same thing. No, no. We're to, we're, to, we're to believe with our conscience. We're to understand. We're to embrace truth. We're to be teaching. And so that we are not to grant to the church, much less a celebrity preacher type person, uh, that authority that is in the place of God. But we do not have, my friends, liberty to sin. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Now there have been, and not just in our generation, although we've got it in a major way, but there's been other generations where the whole issue of Christian liberty has led to license. I always think of Calvin and the Libertines. And these were fashionable elites in Geneva, and they had mistresses. That was their biggest thing. And they, they were drunken and all these things. And uh, Calvin had the temerity. Who did he think he was to refuse them the Lord's Supper? This is what he was kicked out of Geneva over. And they, they got the city council to require Calvin to serve the Lord's Supper to the Libertine. That's what they were called, the Libertine Party. And adultery was like, and, you know, kind of open adultery was one of the big things. And that's where uh, Calvin guarded, they brought the, the sergeant of guards for it. He guarded the, the Lord's Supper with his body. You can hack off my, well, it would have been great to be there. You can hack off my arms. And uh, uh, they didn't hack off, they kicked him out of the town though over that. Um, but he was right. Liberty in no way, I just said that honest, godly people seeking to honor the Lord may come to different convictions about what kinds of show, what, what, what TV shows you allow your children to watch, at what age do they get tele, telephones, at, you know, what kind of car to buy them, can they go to movies, or all these things. Christian, it's your conscience before the Lord. And by the way, you have pastors and elders and Christian friends. You should seek their counsel. But we don't lord it over you. But never is sin an option for a Christian. And we have these handy Ten Commandments that give us such an unchanging, timeless uh, uh, code for that. We never have liberty to sin. And then finally, uh, Christian liberty does not mean anarchy. Interestingly, at the time of the writing of the Westminster Divines, we, we often think, okay, they're thinking about Roman Catholicism, and they often are thinking about Roman Catholicism. But they also had kind of a crazy Pentecostal movement at the same time. That's a bigger deal than we tend to give credit for. And so Christian liberty does not mean disorder. And that's neither true in the civil realm. You go, I have Christian liberty, therefore I don't have to obey the king. Well, try that out in 17th century England and see how that goes. You are not set free. The fifth commandment, in fact, says we're to respect these God-given hierarchies. And that's true in the church as well. And so this final statement, because the powers which God has ordained and the liberty which Christ has purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. And for the publishing of such opinions or maintaining such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversion, 
or to the power of godliness or such erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ has established in the church, they may be lawfully called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church. And so they're maintaining church discipline. You go, yeah, I thought you weren't Lord of the conscience. No, we're the we're the magistrates of the kingdom of Jesus, according to his word. Now, church discipline is to be done according to the Bible. The censures of the church are to be those that, that follow scripture. But Christian liberty doesn't make us all you know, our, our little free agents. We stand or fall before God, but we're to be respectful of the civil offices and the ecclesial. I think publishing was a big deal to them. So I'm just going to publish a pamphlet and pass it out in the narthex. I had a, a, a dear friend of mine, actually, who had some quirky views in my church in Florida, who uh, decided that he came to an unusual position, and he thought that, it, like, he came to, he was a seminary professor. You know how they are. Uh, like, on Tuesday, he came to this view, and he stood in the narthex of our church on Sunday morning and passed out a 20-page document to it. I walked up and said, hand him over. Hand him over. Give him right here. Feel free to come to the session meeting. <laughs> oh, you're right. I should have gone to the session before I handed out yes. Uh, and, of course, that resulted in a church plant. But that, 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 at least it was orderly. Well, a lot of wisdom in this. Uh, I, I want to highlight my friends. Uh, by the way, uh, there are matters of conscience. Uh, there is a lawful use of wine. There is a... Lawful use of most things. God created them all good. There to be, and, and there may be differences in this room about how we do it. But the issue of Christian liberty that needs to stand, that needs to dwell in our heart, is I have freedom to know God. I have been set free from being a pagan, from being in darkness. I have been liberated into the kingdom of God's beloved Son that I might know him, I might worship him, that I might pursue holiness, that I might give a smile to my Father's face by doing his will. That is the very heart of Christian liberty. And for that, we should be willing to die. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wisdom of the divines as they reflected on the teaching of your word. And I pray this would be helpful to those listening tonight. And Father, give us that liberty. Father, you have given us wholly the liberty from the guilt of our sin. But Father, continue to break the power of sin in our lives. And we look forward to that greatest liberty when we will see you face to face, when everything we were meant to be will be consummated in glory to the praise of your glorious name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.